Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. Good afternoon and welcome to the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club podcast. Um, this is our 38th session. My name's Rhiannon Rainbow. And I'm Dave Tushingham, and today we'll be talking about Making Meaning in English, Exploring the Role of Knowledge in the English Curriculum by David Dydow. Let's get stuck in. Good afternoon and welcome to our 38th Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club session. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined once again by David Didow this afternoon. Um, David was so incredibly generous in the sense that um, not only is he here for our second, um, for, for a second time, but he joined us as our very second guest when we started running these sessions. Um, and I think that was in January last year, and we were talking about his book, Making Kids Cleverer. And uh, one of my colleagues says that that's still one of the, her favorite sessions ever was listening to that one. So thank you so much, David. And we also used a piece of yours when we did a, a, our first research ed talk last September as well. So you've become a very firm friend of ours and we, we really appreciate everything that you've done. Um, and I think our listeners and those in the room can get a sense that we could spend a very long time introducing you, but that would that would waste so much of the valuable time we have this afternoon. Um, so I'll keep it very brief in the sense that not only you're an English teacher, education consultant and author, you've written a, a range of books. Uh, we know that this is the second one we're talking about today. You blog at learningspy.co.uk. You can be followed at, at David Didow. And um, you also were a colleague of ours and you worked across some of our schools, which we were hugely appreciative of. And I think I met you in person for the first time at Homely Park, Holly, when he went for his tour with Patrick Farnborough before he started. Yeah. in in the autumn term so it, thank you once again for joining us um hugely thrilled to bits and i'm going to pass over to dave who will introduce why this book in our thread of books and then also afterwards dave will bring holly in because she's going to talk about why behind chapter two before we hand over to hear um the richness that you're going to bring to our session today Oh, thanks, Rhiannon, and, and thanks, David, again for joining us um, on our second occasion. We feel so privileged to have you with us. Um, reading reading the book, it was one of those books where it was like, how do we shoehorn this into our golden thread? First of all, it was um, it was an absolutely um, fabulous read for someone who's not an English specialist to be able to pick up so much um, through the book um, and think about, well, I, this is something that I could take and adapt and then use in my classroom as a way of thinking. It was just um, I thought it was just a fantastic read and. I'm just thinking about some of the bits um, within that um, because we, we've um, chosen to talk specifically about um, chapter two, which is about the problems in English. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm on the summary point, the key points at the moment. And um, some of the ideas, which is an English specialist, I think the book really um, does talk um, in depth about these things and, and throughout the book, um, there's lots of references back to this, I feel. Um, but, but for a non-English specialist as well to be able to look and, and think about how if, um, 
English is taught more as a knowledge-based subject, um, then it's more likely to be better understood. Just really sort of resonated with me as a, an idea of sort of building up your knowledge um, and then being in a position where you can apply the knowledge that's needed um, to practice the skills. It just made me think about what I do in my subject and how I could build um, from novice to expert with my students. And um, and just little, little points in other chapters that just, uh, for example, um, the idea of knowledge not just being facts. It's something that once you read that and you think about knowledge as, as being emotions, etc., rather than just being the facts as well, um, it makes sense. But, but without reading that, without being able to reflect and, and sort of go on that journey with you through that book, um, these are things that, that are likely to be missed, especially or particularly for me. Um, so, so this is why I thought the book was a particularly powerful one to have with us. And in terms of our thread, um, A, to have that consistency to have you come back with us and start to talk about more of those ideas in a, in a specialist sense. Um, I thought was really powerful for us, but also um, sort of just looking looking at that um, that thread and thinking about novice to expert. It felt like that was um, a journey that we've been on through our sessions, and, and that you essentially set the tone for us in that. Um, the, the many of our subsequent sessions were about well, what does it look like for a novice? What does it look like for an expert? And, and that's what we talked about last January with making kids cleverer and and just being able to sort of revisit that with you through this book, think about the problems that are in this um, subject and, and be able to hand over to, to specialist teachers is just an absolute pleasure and privilege to have. So David, I'm gonna um, be quiet now. I'm gonna pass over to you because I think that's enough for me again. Um, but, but just again, thank you so much for joining us and just really looking forward to hearing from you again uh, in this hour. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, I chose chapter two partly because uh, for me, it really resonated with some of the problems I've faced um, in, in English and as a subject leader. Um, and in considering lots of the questions and the problems you pose in that chapter has really helped us as a department to think about the foundations that we want to have for mapping out the rest of our curriculum and the, the knowledge that we want our students to have. Um, one of the first sort of issues that you discuss within English is that wide-held assumption that um, English is a skills-based subject um, and you sort of challenge that by saying that really it's about teaching knowledge um, and so I wondered really if you could sort of start there and, and discuss a little bit about the types of knowledge in, in, within English and how you came about that. Yeah okay I think um, I think what happens a lot of the time is that we as 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 um, as teachers, we're we're obviously skilled at our subject, and um, oh, and that means that often we've forgotten what it was like not to be, and and the process we went through of acquiring the skill that we have, and and then we go into the classroom and we'll say things like, okay, I'm going to teach the class how to how to write an analytical essay, and uh, and you know writing an analytical essay is a skill, so you're we're gonna we're gonna do that, we're gonna learn the skill of writing. You know, of analysis or of evaluation or whatever it is and um and that that it these things are composed of thousands probably of components of of, of knowledge of bits and bobs and, and and so one of the things and i think this is something that i didn't really address when i wrote the book it's become clearer to me subsequently is that it's endemic in english that children are assessed on their ability to do things that nobody's taught them to do. Um, and so we, um, we, we typically uh, assess in English through an extended piece of writing. Um, and some kids work out what it is that we want them to do 
and uh, and we think, oh, we've, I've done really well because those kids have got it, so I must be doing something right. And other kids don't. Other kids don't work out what to do, and they do badly. And uh, and we go, well, you know, you can't you can't be successful with everybody. So I sh- I'll, g- I'll give myself a break. But I think what tends to be the case is that the children that are successful when we try and teach um, edifices of skill uh, tend to be the most advantaged students. And, uh, and the ones who are unsuccessful tend to be the least advantaged. And I think that the, the children who are successful are successful despite us. It doesn't really, you know, the, and, the, and the children who are unsuccessful will only be successful because of us. So, so it's, I think it's everybody benefits if we're really, really clear, if we carefully specify the knowledge that goes into each of the skill areas, teach all of those bits of knowledge, and then give students an opportunity to practice applying them. So, um, you know, my, 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 the way I think of skill is knowledge plus practice equals skill. There's a nice little, nice little bit of maths there for you. I know, I thought you'd like that, Dave. Um, and, uh, and so it's, skill emerges from, from practicing applying knowledge. That's the, that's the, so you take, some, you take something like the analytical essay, um, and I think that what you need to do is teach the components of it and assess each component in isolation before moving on. So the way that I recommend beginning that process is by teaching a, students how to write a thesis statement. And I, and I define thesis statements uh, in a very particular way. So and I don't think anyone else necessarily does, but my definition of a thesis statement is a one sentence answer to an essay question that shows two different points of view. And, and I would teach students to to write it beginning with a subordinating conjunction like although or despite or because and and in the subordinate the subordinate clause to put one side one point of view and then have a comma as a pivot point so that they change direction and then in the independent clause they put the opposing point of view and that's something that um, I would drill again and again and again so lots and lots and lots of really sort of open looking essay questions, which you, you know, you might think typically children might write a couple of paragraphs or a page, but they're, they're learning the, the ability to answer them with one sentence. And they're doing it with such regularity uh, that uh, it's hard for them not to get good at it. And so I think a really useful mantra that doesn't just underpin good English teaching, but good teaching is don't practice in children, until children can do it, practice until they can no longer not do it. And uh, and then it it'll probably stick. It's that um, I've come in now, and I knew what I was going to say when I was about to come in. Is you don't practice it until you get it right. You practice it until you don't get it wrong. And I think that's it's it's so important. And obviously, the way that you said it just then was far sharper than mine. Um, but no, it just. And I think you're right. A number of subjects can can take note from that as well um, because it, it it's it's an approach that I think sometimes not just ourselves but it's reminding others when we're having conversations with them as well somebody might have a be walking into our lessons doing a drop-in and questioning well that student there got that bit right why are they continuing on questions like that and then you come back and say well because they got that one right I want to make sure that they can consistently yeah. perform at doing that. And that it is something that people still are having 
conversations around? Yeah, I think one of the things, one of the things which kind of irritates me at the moment is, you know, that that whole rose and shines principles thing of you, you, you aim for 80% of kids getting it right. That's such an incredibly unambitious low bar. I think that's shocking that you write off a fifth of kids. Um, I think you should aim for 100% and sort of recognize that you might not regularly get 100%, but if you're not getting damn close to it, something either with the curriculum or with your teaching of it has gone badly wrong. Um, and I think that, <laughs> I think we should really raise our expectations there. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the, the idea that you said at the start there about we're assessing people or students on, on things we haven't explicitly taught them um, as such. And actually, I wonder if that sort of links in with this idea that, you know, people dropping in and popping into English lessons expect to see perhaps quite a lot of writing in books. And so, you know, actually that's that sort of taking it slow and perhaps just practicing a thesis statement or, you know, even going a lot further back. And actually maybe in year seven, we we spend a lot of time thinking about topic sentences and really, really drilling those. How do you start an analysis paragraph before rushing them into it. I wonder if there's a sort of grappling there with expectations around what English used to look like or should look like and what actually is beneficial right. to the student. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's something that I confront quite a lot uh, that um, how do we get students to be to write extended pieces of writing and do that well? And the, the fallback position is, well, they just need to do lots of extended writing and then they'll get better at it. But that doesn't seem to work particularly well. What tends to happen is that children do lots of really rubbish extended writing, and they so that's what they practice. They get and so they get better at doing it badly, and that certainly is not in students' interest. So I think it's much more sensible to do short bursts where you master at sentence level before moving on to combining sentences, and you practice that until it's mastered. And then you move on to creating paragraphs and you, and you practice that until it's mastered and, and slowly, slowly, slowly. And the, the, it, the, the idea is that the, I, I think of the, I, like, I really like the couch to 5K analogy that, that really works for exercise, that, that in that analogy, the, the, the amount of writing that we want students to do, the 5K is what they need to do at the end of year 11. And we've got five years to get them race fit. And as anyone who knows anything about physical training will happily tell you, you know, that the best way to run, practice running five kilometers is not to just run five kilometers, you've got to build up. And, and I think that what tends to happen is that some students that we teach, and again, typically it's more likely to be students from advantaged backgrounds. We ask them to do the equivalent of a 5K right when they start secondary school and they, they can and they do it and they're fine and others, can't and they they fall flat and they just learn they're rubbish at English and they just think oh you know then and then we're always fighting against the fact that they've come to believe they're rubbish because we've set them up to fail because we haven't prepped them properly whereas if we get them to master sentence level work then they can they can see their success and uh, and and then they can start to trust it and and I think that's a much more likely to be a successful strategy. So I think it's really, I think this is really important for school leaders in particular, stop getting teachers to write, to get their students to write more in books because more often than not, it's actually making children worse at writing.
Yeah, definitely. And I think also linked in with that is this idea of assessment as well, particularly at key stage three, thinking about what that looks like, because, you know, if we're sort of monitoring um, them in the traditional way, it would maybe be to write a piece of creative writing or something like that. But actually, that's, as you say, the end goal. So, you know, it's sort of that working backwards and thinking what do they need to achieve at the end of each year rather than sort of uh, giving them something huge that they're, they're never going to master. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think that the difficulty that we have as English teachers is that essentially key stage three English is completely different to key stage four English. So especially with literature. So with literature, key stage four, you're you learn books, you, you learn quotations, you learn the character and the plot and you learn interpretations and and that holds you in good stead for your GCSEs. The, the texts that you study in Key Stage 3, there's no point in learning them. Um, the, the idea there is that you, you experience them and hopefully, ideally, we've created a really rich experience for students that will, that will enhance their understanding of language and literature. But, but it isn't the ob they're, they're not the objects of study in the same way. And I, I think it's really important for English teachers to grapple with the idea that the English curriculum, especially at Key Stage 3, must be concept-led rather than text-led. Mm. And the, the texts that we choose, you know, they're hopefully beautiful, wonderful texts, but they're still vehicles for conceptual understandings. Come on in, Dave. Sorry, I was, yeah. Oh, this is, this is fab. <laughs> Really, I was going to um, say something actually while you're while you're oh, waiting. God. I was going to I was going to say some of the like this idea of skill and knowledge. Here's where I think it connects with maths for your I know your hordes of maths listeners. That there are maths is very different to English in the, in in the, in, in the it's much much more highly specified subjects and we and maths teachers tend to be much much clearer about the knowledge that they need to get students to learn and practice. But I think there are areas of maths which are very poorly specified. So for instance, one, one area might be calculator use, where there's a lot of assumptions our kids just can do that. And, and again, you know, some kids can and some kids can't, but because you haven't broken it down into sufficiently small steps, we're allowed, we, we then go on to assess their, you know, their, their calculator use, not directly, but in their, you know, on, their, on the calculator's papers, they're indirectly having their calculator use assessed. And if they haven't been explicitly taught, then we're doing something quite unfair. And I think Absolutely. there's probably something similar with, with you know, the other tools like protractors and, and set squares and that sort of thing that, that maybe, maybe maths teachers are guilty of assuming a level of skill that doesn't exist. And, and I think not just with students, but colleagues as well. Oh. Um, to the point that, so um, if we're thinking of calculator use, um, the easiest way to have that uh, or any, uh, any um, tool that we have in the classroom is for all students and everybody to have the same. Just like if you have it, if you're looking at a text, you all have the same edition. Otherwise, there can be differences, and those differences are a blocker and a barrier. So they that really means, are. They yeah. Really so that are. means that you. Yeah, so I, I was I was just... an anecdote of that. When I was at school, I had we were studying Romeo and Juliet um, in class, and I I had my own copy that I brought in from home. I was very proud of it. But the, the school, the, the everyone else had a school's edition, and I had been asked to read the part of Mercutio, and I was really chuffed. I loved Mercutio. I was reading the part of Mercutio, and there's a bit in it where he he talks about Romeo being an open ass, and I read this out, and my English teacher was like. 
what? Because <laughs> that wasn't in everyone else's text. And I had to sort of justify, go, no, look, it's here. Uh, but there you are. No, that really underlines your point, Rihanna. Yeah, and, and thank you. I think that's a, it's, it's a classic, isn't it? It's one of it, and I think it's a brilliant analogy to bring into the room. It's just, if we don't all have the same and we don't break it down and we're not explicit about it, then it's not going to be our normal way of working. And we're going to look for- open arse. Yeah, you might get open arse in an English lesson. Um, you might look for things that are convenient to do than actually what will be a really rich quality opportunity. Um, and so having, having the same additionals of something or being really explicit about what it is we want our staff to do and then that the students are able to do from that. And I think the way you say about breaking it down so it's, it, it's manageable and not just having everybody. Uh, I mean, for me, the thought of just constantly being asked to write essay after essay after essay without breaking it down and knowing the, the finer details of what it is I'm working on the next one rather than just producing another essay Right. Could be. But then you also have to build your stamina up for that at the same time, yeah. don't you? No, you're right. And, 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 and to be fair, English teachers know this. And for, for decades, we've been, you know, we've had things like point evidence explain knocking around. And I remember when I, I that wasn't uh, that wasn't something I, I knew about when I was trained to be an English teacher. It emerged during my career. And I remember the first time I encountered it. I thought, oh, that's really good. That's really, really useful. That that really makes it easier for students to know what they're doing but as every English teacher knows it's really hard to avoid the situation of students saying things like Macbeth is brave I know this because it says brave Macbeth this shows Macbeth is brave and you know I'm just basically writing gibberish something I think of as cargo cult writing where they're they're, 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 they're imitating an academic essay it looks a bit like it from a distance but you get closer and it's made of twigs um, and is useless Oh, thank you ever so much. Um, I wish I wish it was slightly different from my from when I had experienced English um, as to the, the changes. And I, when I hear the work that's being done by Sean and the team across the trust, I think it's absolutely incredible what they're doing on the curriculum. Um, and Dave, I'm going to I'm going to keep going. So you're going to have to come in right now before I take over. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, and, uh, and I was just um, reflecting when you talked about um, how, how we wanted this um, concept-led curriculum rather than a text-led curriculum and, and the idea um, is something that um, is going across sessions as well so Lee Sullivan is uh, going to be talking to, um, with us soon about PE and, and talking about the same things uh, around a concept-led curriculum I feel and, and it's just something which uh, I felt well yes that, that really makes sense um, and there's a, a, a question in the chat um, here as well from Amina who says um, should the concepts lead to then a deeper understanding of the specific key stage four text which which feels to me like that absolutely makes sense but I didn't know if there's anything you wanted to sort of add or, or yeah, elaborate yeah. on with that comment. Yeah 100% and, and the majority of the book is is written around these six disciplinary concepts that I think are English specific, metaphor, story, argument, pattern, context and grammar. And, you know, that, that that's just what I reckon. No, you know, no, nobody else agrees with me particularly. There's, there's, unlike maths, there's no consensus in, 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 with, with, in, in, the, in the discipline. And so, and there's very little, there's very little work or, or thinking that has gone around trying to organize 
the, the various concepts. But I think it's really useful to have boxes, conceptual boxes in which you can, which, which you can fit other things. So in the box that's metaphor, what, what's going on with that is that it's about um, the analysis of language. Um, and it's looking at the fact that there are linguistics as well as, uh, as, well as literary metaphors and they, and they behave slightly differently. We, we, so with, uh, with linguistic metaphors, often they're, they're very stable and predictable and they don't have, and so predictable in fact that often we don't notice them. Um, you know, things like the way that argument is conceived as a battle, you know, we, in the way that we talk about it, or, or medicines conceived as a battle, we fight illnesses and that sort of thing, have bouts of illnesses. Um, but li literary metaphors are a completely different kettle of fish. They're, they're surprising and, they, and they, 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 they open up a new understanding and a new way of looking at things, which has to be sudden and jarring in some way in order for them to be effective. And I think that there are, you know, like we said, maths is very different in that it has, I think it's sometimes been described as, as being a very tall, thin structure where you have to build the blocks at the bottom for the bits at the top to make sense. Whereas English, I think, is a very wide and very shallow structure. But within that, I think there are some orders of precedence. It does make sense to do some things to enable later things. So within a concept box like metaphor, I think it's the, the bit that I think is really in, useful and important to, as a prerequisite for what comes later is to teach students that metaphors have different parts and that if you give them names for those different parts, then they can start to see how they work in a much more interesting way. So in the book, I talk about the names of the parts that I'm using following um, IA Richards's tenor and vehicle. And we sound really arcane and it's like, oh my God, why would we want to come up with yet more terminology for students to kind of wrestle with? But I think the one of the bits that I think I, I find endlessly satisfying, not just about English, but particularly English, is how etymology sheds light on, on the words that we use. So, um, and you know, for instance, with the word metaphor, I regularly when I'm in schools, I'll say to kids, what's a metaphor? And they don't really know. They go, oh, it's like when something, something else. And I go, well, what if I say that chair's an egg? Is that a metaphor? And they go, no, that's a lie. And they're like, yeah. So what's the difference between a lie and a metaphor? And it's, and it's difficult. So the, the definition that I, I've come to use is that is, is from the looking at the etymology, the Greek. So the, the meta means between and the, the, the four is to, is to carry. Um, and so you'll carry something between metaphorical places. And it's kind of rather beautiful to me that to this day, lorries in Greece are called metaphores. And so they literally transport stuff around the country. And so a, a literary metaphor metaphorically transports stuff from metaphorical place to place. And the, the, the vehicle is the language that's used to do the transportation. And the tenor, which comes from the Latin to hold, is what's held inside the vehicle. And, and so by 
talking about the etymology and, and reinforcing that. So I, when I talk about this with students, I have a, I've made a little sort of animated thing where there's a, a, where there's a lorry that moves across the ground, which is the relationship between tenor and vehicle, and the, the tenor's placed in the back of the lorry and it moves it across, and they go, oh, okay, I get it. And, and, it's, and it's that kind of opening up that I think really, I don't know, I find that quite exciting. I think that sounds, that sounds wonderful. Um, I love it. I'm going to come back to something you said about the, um, that there's no consensus in the discipline. And as you were talking, it, I felt like it was because it's wide and shallow um, as, a, as a sort of curriculum rather than the tool structure that mathematics had. But then it got me thinking about sort of the, um, the equation you gave um, delighted me to hear the equation knowledge plus practice equals skill. I was so excited to hear it. But, um, but it, it just made me think, I wonder if that there is um, sort of similarities or differences in my subject now and just sort of to trial my understanding and for you to comment on this really and then to correct me where, where you think necessary. But um, for me, I'm thinking about the novices and the experts. And I'm thinking about how, how that, that formula might play out. Um, with the novice, it might be that you're working with more knowledge. Maybe you're giving a higher level of scaffolding to, to get to the skill, to be able to access that skill, to be able to practice that skill. Um, yeah. as well is there more time for the experts to practice a skill do we want to spend more time around the knowledge for the novices is there something where we want to try and sort of really have that as an even um represent proportionality um within that i just thought maybe if i can learn more i mean from you. I, I don't want yeah. to comment on maths as never to be wrong but yeah. I, you know My you friend. know yourself that there's a lot of work that's been done on practice um, and work, you know, how to use worked examples in mathematics. It's like, it's probably the main area that that kind of thinking has been done. And one of the things that I've tried to do and tried to think about is how to produce worked examples and problem pairs for English from maths. So looking, you know, showing a, a, a structured sentence and talking it through and saying, okay, so here's a question, here's the sentence that answers it, here are all the different things, and here's why it works, you know, modeling, modeling, worked example, worked example, and here's an identity, here's another question, and here's an identical structure that you have to use, and you've got to, but you can't copy that one because there's different content, because it's a different question, but you must copy the structure in order to get that, and, and I think that that's something where I think as, as, a, as an English teacher, I've really benefited from looking at some of the research that's gone on in, in mathematics. So I don't know whether that's, it's probably not what you're talking about, Dave. I think you're on mute. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, I found on mute. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, what I was thinking about and whether there was uh, parallels or what it might look like in English. So to hear that, um, a, a, I find it reassuring, but B, I find it really interesting to think of those two very different subjects coming towards the same core principle of, um, of sort of working with that knowledge and scaffolding and, and fading through and the, the backward fading idea that you might use to access skill, for example, the example problem pair. I think, I think it's really reassuring, but also really interesting to hear that that, that similar model is, um, is something that would really work there as well. Yeah, although, you know, I think that that way of thinking is much more uh, embedded in the maths community. And I think many, many more maths teachers kind of get that approach. And I think it's relatively rare in English. I don't know, what do you think, Holly? Do you think that's true? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I do. I think, yeah, it's quite a, a rare thing in English. Um, yeah, I think we could actually, the conversation we're having now is making me think a lot about what we can take from maths and apply to, to an English setting in terms of the way that we 
we we break down parts and see things as building blocks for for a bigger kind of skill as it were yeah so like just i was mentioning earlier about the the thesis statement being subordinating conjunction plus subordinate clause comma and then independent clause and then we the next step is to use that to make topic sentence so in the in the you put a you'd put a one adjective in a in the independent clause and maybe another one or two in the independent clause and and then those adjectives are transformed into nouns in a topic sentence so that the formula for a topic sentence is noun phrase plus verb plus link back to question and and trying to formularize it like that um really helps guide students practice and it really helps then to be able to say that if you get if you nail the thesis statement if you get it right if you get good at it it plans an essay for you because you then have three or four linked topic sentences that are derived from like for instance if you said for instance something like although Macbeth is presented um as as heroic at the start of the play comma later he becomes at first hesitant and then tyrannical and then your you your topic sentences is you'd write one about heroism and one about hesitancy and one about tyranny, and so the you know the the topic sentence then for heroism would be that Macbeth's heroism noun phrase is verb shown in and then you know linking it to the question whether that kind of thing does that make sense? Yeah, and I think actually a lot of my students and I'm sure this goes across the board they they enjoy maths perhaps more in certain extent because they there is that formula and and actually, does anyone enjoy it more really well they certainly seem to have more success and perhaps actually that is or, yeah. or at least they perceive they have more success yeah, you're absolutely right kids love being successful mm, absolutely and I think as soon as you give them the, that kind of the, the key to unlock this this thing that they don't understand otherwise then suddenly they start to see success and and, and they engage more and, and it builds on itself. So yeah, I definitely, I completely agree. These, these nice structures that we can apply to, again, not just Shakespeare essays, but all essays, suddenly they've got the tools to be able to, to write really brilliantly about the topics they've, they've acquired knowledge on. Yeah, it's a, it just sounds like being able to give them being really specific about the tools that the students have got and I just because of you know I'll hear um, Sean Delahoy who's my partner um, in, in, in on the English side for, for Watson across the trust like for you David you have Gemma Sherwood who's who's the sort of parallel in, in maths um, at your trust and I'll hear a sort of in the room there'll be conversations around um, developing modelling and explanation in English so that it is more specific and that it is broken down more and and trying to get clarity over what that means and what that looks like and discussing it it's it's not an easy thing to do but if you like you said there Holly if you're able to break it down so students feel they, that they can de develop that tool and then like Ron Berger talks about having a toolbox and then not necessarily having a silver bullet for everything, but then knowing you've got this selection and picking and choosing the best ones and maybe adjusting them slightly for the for the context or what it is you're working on, but having that confidence at your own competence at each of them for when you're bringing it together. And I think what you're saying, David, about working on each one explicitly and saying, this is this here, now you're going to try this exact same thing here, just develops that, especially for people who are, 
um, less confident about their English and their, their ability to, to write as articulately as others, as say somebody like myself in the classroom. Um, uh, Holly, I know you also raised your hand to ask a question too. Yeah, I did. Um, it was actually about the six kind of concepts that you, you've come up with, David, the, the idea of metaphor, story, argument, pattern, grammar, context. I'm so intrigued. How did you come up with those as your sort of definitive list? Because it's such an unwieldy sort of world out there as English. How were you able to kind of get those boxes as you sort of referred to them earlier? Well, um, the, 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 the origin story is that um, I, I taught for a year on a, on a PGC course, at uh, a course which is now defunct at BPP University. And one of the um, trainees that I had there, a woman called Molly Jans, um, who was, you know, complete genius. Um, we, we, were, we were talking about this and we went for a coffee in, in, in I think, uh, King's Cross train station and we worked all this out on the back of a napkin in a coffee shop um, or at least you know we were kind of like how do we kind of position these things and 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 one of the big debates we had was what do we do with structure is structure the concept or is structure contained within something and so we decided that structure was part of something which I gave the the name pattern for want of a for, of a better label because there are other patterns that, that, that don't quite fit what we mean by structure, uh, and so that was the genesis of it. And I'd done I'd done quite a bit of work and quite a bit of thinking about those. You know, I was thinking I was calling them epistemological lenses for English, and uh, and then I went to um, visit um, Phil Stock at, at Greenshaw High, obviously uh, one of your colleagues, and uh, he was you know he he's he's very much a fellow traveller, and you know we've sort of exchanged ideas over the years, and 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 have become sort of you know probably too similar in our thinking maybe, but when I was there, he was saying, yeah, we've got pretty much those slight, slight differences. We've got pretty much those, but he made the argument that grammar needed to be separated from pattern. I had grammar as part of pattern because it's, there are, you know, it is patterns. And he said, no, I think it needs to be separate because it's so big. And he also made the argument that, that it was worth treating context as a conceptual area, which I was convinced by. So that's basically the origin story. Molly Jans and Phil Stock, they were the, they're the ones to thank. It was, um, so at Jennifer Webb's, or Jenny Webb's session the other week, um, we diverged onto grammar as well because she's writing a book on it and there are a couple of questions and Holly will tell me if I get yeah. this absolutely wrong. But Sean was asking about um, how do we teach grammar? Is there a certain progression to, to it? What it, what it? What's your advice on it? And she said, well, look at the text or the concept or the context that you're focused on at the moment and what aspects of grammar are within that that it's best to highlight so instead of trying to shoehorn it in she was talking about looking at the opportunities for grammar within that but then that's yeah so intricate yeah and yeah. And, and the depth required to do that I can imagine yeah. would be quite a challenge yeah I I mean, I don't know quite what she said, so I don't want to sort of tread on her toes and sort of... And I, I, I paraphrased badly. Quite, quite that. Um, so it's more a case of... Um, I've been very, very much persuaded by the essence of the approach in The Writing Revolution, Natalie Wexler and Judith Hox Hopman's book, um, and that, that grammar is for meaning. And so I think that, that children need enough grammatical knowledge, enough metalinguistic knowledge to be able to answer three questions 
And those three questions are, what options are available? Um, why this one? What, why has this option been chosen? And what effect does it have on me as a reader or, or on my readers? And, uh, and if you can answer those three questions, then you've, you've got, you know, that's, that's, that's sufficient grammatical knowledge. So, so I think the bit that particularly, you know, pre-A level, the bit that's really missed out of grammar teaching is the semantics and pragmatics, you know, that what, what does it all mean? What is it all for? And, and the more we do of that, the more grammar is more than just a set of exercises. So I, you know, I went through a period of being very convinced that, you know, we should have de decontextualized grammar lessons. I've now completely come away from that and, and decided that that, you know, doesn't seem to, to have the, the result or the, the effect that we'd want it to have. And so it's introducing points of grammar at the point that they become useful. So, you know, so for instance, you know, I, I've said it a few times, I, I absolutely, um, if I teach a lesson on writing, I'll spend a long time for it, and I do this, you know, sort of drop in and teach lessons in, in various of our academies, much to the annoyance of the, the teachers in, in situ. But I'll kind of like hammer kids with a phrase, like with a term like subordinating conjunction, and I'll, and I'll say it so, you know, like 50 times during the lesson and say to them, what was it again? What does it mean? What was it? And, and to the point where they, they're, even though it's one lesson, they're starting to like, we know what it is. Um, and the reason I do that is because not because I want them to learn the term, but because that makes teaching more efficient. And so if I, if I think it's sufficiently important, that I'm going to use it a lot, then it's, it's just a lot clearer and easier than the alternative of trying to find some other way to express the idea. So that, that metalinguistic knowledge, the, the language about language, um, is, is only teach the bits that you're actually going to teach, that are actually going to inform your teaching. So... So it's absolutely essential, I think, that children know about word class. So the, a lot of vocabulary instruction, uh, this is where I think it's you know, particularly important, a lot of in vocabulary instruction I see in schools results in very, very inflexible vocabulary knowledge where children, you know, they'll, they'll learn like the word patriarchy, but they won't know patriarchal or patriarch. And so they end up torturing a sentence to try and make their, the word form that they know fit into the sentence they're trying to write. Whereas if at the point of vocabulary instruction, we're saying, look, this is the root and here's how it changes from noun to adjective to adverb to, you know, the, the, this is what you can do with it. Um, and that's, that's just a normal part of the instruction. Then they, beget, they get much more flexible vocabulary knowledge. So it's, it's giving them those words, noun, verb, adverb, and adjective, essential. Do they need to know about prepositions? Well, only if you, you're gonna use the word preposition in your teaching. So if preposition becomes useful, if you want them to, to discuss pre prepositional relationships, then, then you introduce the term at the point where you're gonna use it. But you don't, I think, you don't get them to learn that for the sake of just labeling it in a sentence. Does that no, make sense? Absolutely. Um, and that is what Jenny was saying. I just oh. put it across really badly. Um, which is which is to be expected. I'm right at the novice end of it, so my huge apologies. Um, yeah, Dave, you've you've got your hand up before I carry on down the grammar train. Oh yeah, no, no worries. I was um, I was just sort of um, reflecting and, and wanted to throw something out there for to be sort of um, guided, um, I guess, in in my idea um, on this. But but what I'm hearing there is that with grammar, you'd still teach all the knowledge of the grammar. But it's about the sequencing, and you talk about sort of having the right text and how important the sequencing is. 
um, through the English curriculum. And that's sort of what I was picking up there is you'll be teaching the knowledge, but it's about teaching it at the right time. So it's going to have the impact, have, have the relevance and, and be important at that particular time. I don't know whether that's sort of makes sense and is, is true to what you're what you're yeah. saying. Um, but also there's a, a question uh, from Amina here um, about sort of um, her experience uh, around modeling a paragraph and applying it to different content. Um, and she said it's uh, the 20% that do struggle with um, inserting different content with a different question. And um, they try uh, with number and information um, as to where to insert them um, using a model um, or using the model. Um, is there a way that works for that? 20 percent i hope i've explained that okay um amina as well i hope that makes sense david um yeah i can't see that question in the chat actually uh, uh, that's coming just to us directly oh um, right right okay yeah. amina send it to the chat yeah. and then i can see it <laughs> um uh I, i'm not sure i don't really, i'm not sure i completely because it's quite a long thing there so i'm not quite sure i get it get what she's asking can we break that down a bit dave you, you've got yeah let me oh, break that down here Let it me is. break that in down. Chat, so, um, modeling okay. a paragraph. Right. So th there's your problem, modeling a paragraph. Stop modeling paragraphs and start modeling sentences. That's that, I think, the answer. So the, the, there's so much information in a paragraph that, you know, it, 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 it often, I think you, we have the illusion that we're doing something worthwhile because some kids get it. So if the 20% of the kids aren't getting it, that means you're doing it wrong. And everybody, even the 80%, would benefit from you doing something more explicit. So, so sentence at a time, how are we starting this sentence? What's, what's, what's being front loaded in this sentence? So for instance, if you're, you know, if you're putting, if you're starting with a subordinate clause, what's, how's meaning being weighted? on on what's there or if you're moving you know a clause to the behind that means that you're changing emphasis so talking about those things and using the grammar of the sentence and the word class as you're doing it i think really really makes that that worthwhile and then and then because you're doing it a sentence at a time you model the sentence the children practice the sentence they're only writing a single sentence so it's really easy to give feedback i mean the the mini whiteboard is your friend here get them to write their sentence and hold it up no the comma's in the wrong place here's why what's the pivot point you know what does the comma do it pivots you know and always thinking about meaning you know, not not talking about punctuation, talking about the meaning of punctuation. That's the the way I think you. So so as a as a quality assurance tool for a teacher, if the twenty percent aren't getting it, you stop doing what you're doing and doing something. Try something else because it's the twenty percent that you do it for. Everyone else does it despite you. Does that make sense? I think it makes, that makes absolute sense to me. I hope, yeah, I hope so. Because it's, it's just, I think that's, um, yeah, just absolute clarity with that, that you're working with those 20% and, and that's those are the people that you really want to um, to help to support, to achieve yeah. also. That's I where, think that's they're, where the, you need to be they're the attention. barometer. If, if mm. your 20% aren't getting it, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Yeah. And even if that's not true, even if even if there are other things that are getting in the way, I think it's just a, it's a useful fiction. Yeah. Um, I saw somebody got a lovely person called Justin has asked a question. Um, shall I, shall I? Shall oh, I? yes, yes, please. Yeah, he said, is using of language such as subordinating conjunction, the times tables of grammar? Um, no, I, I don't. If I was going to use an analogy there with maths, I would say, for instance, that phonics is the number bonds of English. Um, so, the, the, what, what, so the, the, you know, basic building blocks. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the times tables is particularly, 
but but it certainly isn't things like subordinating conjunction because I think times table sort of suggests a kind of you know a, a progression and a way through and a sort of a sequence of things whereas I don't think it's always that straightforward in in English there aren't that many things that you want students to to sort of rote learn in quite that way but the sort but some things that I do I definitely do think they benefit from rote learning are the definitions of terminology like I was saying earlier that you know you'll say to students what's a metaphor and they'll go oh I know what it is but I don't know how to tell you and that's useless if they know precisely what it is and they can give you a fingertips definition without having to think that makes their their thinking that much more flexible then they can then they can adapt that to specific purposes and uses. So, you know, alliteration, what's that? Have a, agree as a department or as a trust, agree on an absolutely rock solid definition. Go back to the etymology and look at the roots to give you pointers for meaning. Agree on the definition and then get all the students to learn that definition to the point of, to, to the point of automaticity and then, and then, you know, ease back and let them play with it. We have the same conversations about being really specific about our language and the terminology we're using when we're using specific terms in, in maths as well. And like you said, they have that shared understanding mm. and language and, and use the same definitions so that it's very, very clear for people as well. Um, sure. Justin had um, another really good question, actually. Um, for clarity, I've put it in the chat underneath yeah. a smiley face. I see that. Um... Is there another book that links the two? No, I mean not. I mean maybe. I don't know. Sorry, Justin. Um, I don't know. What would you? A book about cultural capital and linguistics. Um, I mean, you know, if there was, I'd read it. I don't. I haven't read it. And I certainly haven't written it. Sorry. Yet. <laughs> no, that's that, that's really really helpful. Um, thank you for sharing that, Dave. Um, and we are, oh, we very, very sadly, we're within the last 10 minutes of the session now. Um, Dave Tushingham, because I know I've got two Davids in the room, um, you've got your hand up. Is that a legacy or a new hand? Um, no, I'm just reading the chat and just seeing, um, I mean, it says at, at the end there um, whether you can do the same with effects. And I was just um, checking sort of whether that's something um, we were able to talk a little bit more about if it it's something that makes sense that conversation but um and otherwise um i just had a, a little bit which i was really interested in with the the knowledge and practice part and how we talk about phonics and whether there's um a difference um in in the way we might approach at the very very early stages of reading whether there's any sort of thoughts around um what we do at the very beginning of that learning journey as well or whether it's just a very similar approach throughout um because that's how we learn i didn't know whether you had any thoughts of the very sort of initial stages of learning to read so, and write you know, it's, a, it's a whole different area of specialism and obviously i've got opinions on early reading instruction but i don't do it um for anyone that wants to know about early reading instruction this is this is the book for them, um, Christopher Such's book. Uh, you should get him on the art and science of primary primary reading. Uh, he, he he. This I think this is. Uh, I've got you know that that I think does the job. Um, and I think, but I think that in secondary schools, I think that, that what happens a lot of the time that when children come into secondary school and they can't read, there's often an assumption of well they've done phonics, therefore they need something different. Phonics didn't work. And, uh, and I think that that's by usually untrue. 
um, they either didn't get enough of it or they couldn't access it. And so, you know, a lot of children um, had have glue ear or undiagnosed visual problems at the point that they're learning to read. And so they've got audio visual problems, which prevent, make it more difficult for them to hear those phoneme graphene correspondences. So that's all cleared up by the time they come to secondary school, but the legacy remains. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, for children with neurological issues, they tend to, they don't need something different on the whole. They need more of it um, to get what they need. And so I think that that, I think we're getting better at understanding that in secondary schools, but, um, but I think that, that that's something that we should be more focused on and more aware of, and particularly more aware of um, reading fluency as a thing, that there are children who can read, but they can't read fluently enough to access an academic curriculum. And it's difficult for us to, to diagnose and treat that because fluency testing, I, I don't know of a way that you can do it at scale. Um, that, that fluency tests are done one-to-one -one with a, you know, somebody there, children, a child reading aloud and the, and the, the, the tester sort of marking you know, how, how, how fluent they are. And then interventions can be a bit more scaled than that potentially, but, but we just don't have the time and resources to find out how, how fluent everybody is. And therefore, because we don't know, you know, because we haven't measured the problem, we don't do anything with it. It's one of those sort of issues. Yeah, thank you. And holding that book up there, Christopher Such would be absolutely cracking guest, I think, to have on. Um, I, I think we recognised the cover straight away, didn't we, Dave? Um, so just to make sure that I don't forget to bring you in, Holly, if that's OK, um, I'd, I'd love to hear um, your takeaway from this session, especially as I think I've absolutely uncovered that I'm completely at the novice end when it comes to uh, English subject specialism and I really really appreciate um, the conversations this afternoon the absolutely fantastic questioning and, and the answers and, and the patience from the people in the room as well as I'm trying to to grapple with the ideas um, and, and make sense of them because I think there's a lot of richness in hearing from different um, different um, specialisms and fields and, and trying to extrapolate and, and take it back to their own as well. So thank you ever so much. And Holly, um, I'd love to hear your takeaways and, and, and for what you can share. And then um, Dave, feel free if you want to come in afterwards as well. I think um, despite the fact that we're definitely talking about English, we had some some good maths formula uh, that I think I'm going to take away um, for today. So those, that really nice idea of knowledge plus practice equals skill, I think, is something that is just such a nice way of thinking about how we teach our students and really helpful for thinking about actually what we want them to, to understand and how that builds up to a bigger picture. Um, but also thinking really about how we teach those, those um, pieces of knowledge. So really breaking them down and providing the formula um, for success. So as you were saying about the thesis statements, breaking it down to, to sentence level work um, in order to, to build a, a bigger picture. Um, and then finally, really the, the idea of teaching grammar and context as well. And thinking, I li really liked those questions you said about thinking about grammar, um, you know, why here, what effect? Um, so for me, those those kind of three things are really I'm going to take away and think about and, and how we do that at Homely Park and and what we can do to improve our curriculum as we move forward. So it's been a brilliant session. Thank you. Thanks very much. I've just I've just um, just putting a couple of bits into chat in case anyone's 
interested. I've put the sort of sentence level essay structure sort of program in there. And, and I've also put uh, an illustration of how those six concepts are mapped against um, curriculum content, um, the, how we've done that at uh, Ormiston Academies Trust, the trust that I work for as, as English lead. And, uh, you know, you're welcome to have a look at, at those and, uh, and uh, you know, ask any questions or scoff or whatever it is you want to do. Um, I'd notice, uh, I haven't ans asked uh, Amina's follow-up uh, follow question, which she says, can you do the same with effects, agree in effect, for example, repetition for emphasis. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. That's an interesting one. I, I, I'm cautious of that, sort of saying, this always means that. Um, I've just been recently trying to do, doing, so I've just put together some training on the, the, the effects of consonant sounds. Um, and, and one of the things you have to be, I've, you know, I've found by trying to think about that is, is you have to be really, really cautious about saying, you know, a plosive means this, or, a, you know, if there's a glide or a nasal, it means that. Because it really doesn't. It depends on the content of the, the text that you're studying. So what, what's the meaning of the text? And then, and then, you know, with something like alliteration or assonance, how does the repeated sounds, how does that emphasise, how does that frame the meaning that's present in the words. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know without having a chat about it, Amina, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that I've answered exactly what you, you asked, but that's what I think. Thank you so much, Dave. And just um, to assure uh, those of you who are listening afterwards, um, Amina says, thank you, David. Uh, so uh, 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 the links that David has put in the chat, um, I will share them um, with the recordings afterwards as well. So please don't worry about losing those. It's incredibly generous of you, um, David, to, to share those with us this afternoon. And I'd just like to say a huge thank you once again. Um, it's, it's been absolutely brilliant having you here as a guest and I've gained so much from this conversation. Um, I've made so many notes because so much, I, I've just really, really, really enjoyed it. And I'm struggling to articulate now. My, my, my brain is overloaded. So just a huge thank you from us. And we have another English session coming up as well on the 8th of March, where we'll be joined by Chris Curtis um, for how to teach English. So hopefully I'll be a little bit better at it for the next time as well. So um, Dave, I, uh, Dave Tushingham, I didn't know if you wanted to come in or, 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 or anything to say thank you to. Yeah, lovely. Um, just to say thank you again, David, um, just to reiterate what uh, Rhiannon uh, said there. And uh, yeah, just learn a wonderful amount um, from that. I don't think I'm ready to teach English yet, but I think that I understand a lot more about the subject uh, just from that hour, um, but also um, being able to connect and, and translate what we talked about into my own context. I think that's what it's all about. And, um, and there's certainly um, very few sessions that, that could um, you know, rival what I pick up um, from an hour of talking with you. So just, just wanted to really thank you so much for giving us your time once more. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a wonderful learning experience for us. So, so just thanks so much. You're, you're very welcome. So um, it is half past five. I'm going to stop the recording now.